Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Eurosport's very own snooker podcast, The Break, with me, Andy Goldstein. And it's the season finale, meaning, of course, we've come to the end of the World Championships. And what a tournament we have had. Some upsets, some dramatic wins, and even, would you believe, in the end, a capacity crowd. As usual, you'll be able to download this and other episodes from your podcast platform of choice. But I want to get straight into this one because we are joined by the newly crowned champion of the world. Yes. My guest today is the 2021 Snooker World Champion, the wonderful Mark Selby. Mark, congratulations. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you feeling? Yeah, thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, feeling uh, over the moon, mate, really. Still not really sunk in, and I don't think it will do for a few weeks yet. Uh, we'll go over the 17 days in a moment, but what did you do to celebrate? Did, were you allowed out? What happened? Were there people there with you? Uh, well, I had some of my friends and family there, yeah, but uh, I only had like a the family sort of backstage. So there was Vicky, Vicky's mum, obviously Sophia, uh, Vicky's sister and brother-in-law, people like that. So we didn't really have a chance to celebrate with all the COVID rules. Uh, but hopefully come later on in May or June when they do release some restrictions, I can have some kind of party and have the family and friends together and celebrate it in that way. And those people you mentioned, were they with you for the 17 days or they joined you late on? No, yeah, they only come for the final. Uh, it was just me and Vicky from start to finish, really. Uh, Vicky was there from the start all the way through to the final. And then we was allowed some, we got given 11 balcony tickets and we can also buy some tickets to the arena. So we had we had the friends and family there for the final. Listen, it's an incredible tournament. And of course, a special place to come and play snooker. But it's also, from what I understand, a grueling 17 days. What were the, what were the toughest moments for you at the Crucible this year? And was there a point at all throughout those 17 days where you thought maybe it's just not meant to be? Not really. I mean, the the way I started off, I mean, I was I was quietly confident going into the tournament. I was practicing well. I had a couple of days with Chris Emery before the tournament started, and I felt it as though I was mentally in, in the, probably the best place I've been going into the World Championships. Physically, I felt really happy with my game, uh, and and going there, I had a tough first round in Kurt Mafflin on paper, but the way I played and and won the match quite convincingly, which just gave me more confidence leading on into the tournament. I think the hardest part for me, uh, as it's always been. Uh, when I've won the tournament before in the past is is that first day of the final. I felt as though obviously I was mentally and physically fatigued. Didn't really have too much sleep the night before because you're on such a high getting to another world final. Uh, and, and the last few times when I've been in the world final, that first day I've always struggled and, and been behind and sort of chasing the match. But fortunately for me, I didn't get off to a great start, but the second session I played really well and managed to to, to get the upper hand and get 10-7 up. So that was huge for me to go into the final day being in front because the three previous times when I've won it, I've always been behind. I noticed there in your answer, you mentioned the mental side of things. You mentioned it, of course, in your speech as well. Is that something you've struggled with, Mark, over the last 12, 18 months? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in, in the past, I've always been quite good mentally. Uh, but then, obviously, losing the number one spot uh, sort of dealt a little bit of a blow. I mean, because I was quite consistent for a good three or four years, winning a few tournaments a season. Uh, always to the back end of tournaments. And then I had like a powerful patch for about 18 months to two years where I wasn't really competing. 
wasn't playing fantastic. Mentally, I was a little bit fragile because I was losing all the while. And I've always said in sport, it doesn't matter what you've achieved, but if you keep losing, you're only going to get lose your confidence. Same as the other way around. If you're winning all the while, obviously you get really confident. So that was sort of tough to take. And when I was losing my confidence, I was questioning my technique. Do I need to change anything? Which every sportsman always does. You look at Rory McIlroy at the golf at the minute, he's not winning and he's looking at his technique. And more times than not, Chris Emery is saying to me, look, what you're doing at the moment is what you were doing years ago. So it's definitely nothing technically. It's it's always upstairs. Uh, but I always thought that I was mentally tough upstairs. And obviously Chris has is, Chris is told me different. <laughs> Did he get you playing with the ping pong balls a lot? Yeah, yeah. I started off with them when we first got together uh, ten, 10 months ago. He, he started doing them just basically to, to check my technique, to see if it was obviously a little bit out and we needed to tweak stuff. And he says, overall, I was, I was quite consistent with them. So he said he, he didn't really see that as a problem. So he just worked on the mental side. And, and fortunately enough for me, the first tournament of the season working with him after the World Championships, I went on and won the European Masters. So that was, that was the biggest thing what could have happened for me mentally because it told me that technically I was still okay because I won a tournament. So I didn't have to doubt that anymore and just carried on the season enjoying it. Was there, um, was there one particular moment in, uh, in the World Championships where you thought it is going to go your way? You are going to be champion of the world. Was it? Was it as late on as when Sean took that red on down the row and missed it and you had your chance? Yeah, it probably was because all the way through the match, I thought Sean played fantastic from start to finish. He was attacking from, from frame one all the way through till the end. Uh, and, he did, and he didn't let up at any stage. I felt as though my safety was good throughout the match, but Sean sort of made it look amateurish because he's just smashing long balls in from all over the place and making frame winning breaks as well. And, and, and from 17-13, I didn't feel like I had a, a great clear-cut chance to win the match. And at one stage, I'm sitting there thinking, well, if he drops that red down the rail, it's more or less guaranteed to go 7-16. And then it's basically just a spin of a coin then, to just two frames. So when, when he did take that red on and missed, I, I was really happy that I had my chance. And if, if I didn't take it then and I'd lost 18-17, then I couldn't complain. Uh, just looking back at some of your results, the semi-finals were very tough as well. Down for much of it, but edged out a narrow victory. What was it like to be pushed that far by Stuart Bingham? And what did you make of his gamesmanship comments after the match? Did that did that get to you at all? Uh, well, I mean, Stuart, I thought Stuart played great from start to finish as well. I thought he played great all the way through the competition. You know, I mean, he scored as well as anyone in the tournament. I think he had as many centuries probably, or if, if not more than anyone. Uh, and, and it was a tough game, you know. I mean, playing Stuart... Like I say, that that position I was in this year, 13-11 down, if that would have been 18 months ago, two years ago, I probably wouldn't have come through that match. But even at 13-11 down, I was still positive, still felt as though I was going to come through. Uh, and I managed to managed to do that in the end. As, as far as the interview goes, yeah, I was a little bit disappointed with Stu because I feel like I get on well with him and he sort of dug me out saying, is it gamesmanship? And he sort of lost a little bit of respect for me by by the way I was doing it. I mean, I never ever go into a match to try and pull a stroke or try and put somebody off. I mean, that's just not in my nature. You know, I just go out there and try my hardest and that's all I can do. Uh, so I was a little bit disappointed with Stuart like saying that, but then at the same time, you've got to imagine he's obviously gutted himself. He's just come off the table and then you get a microphone shoved straight in your face. So you look at some of the football managers that say things, the wrong things at the wrong times, you know, and it's not easy to do an interview straight after you've lost. Yeah, I totally agree. It's going to be incredibly raw. It's so difficult to talk about. And you, you're you probably not even in control of your emotions at that stage. No, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the last thing you want to do is probably do an interview straight away. I mean, if I'm sure if they'd have interviewed him after a few hours and he'd have, he'd have come down and had a thought about, obviously, what he wanted to say, I'm, I'm pretty sure he probably wouldn't have come out with stuff what he said in the interview then. But, you know, I hold nothing against him. Uh, 
if I see him, obviously, I probably won't go up to him and like speak to him like straight away because obviously I felt as though it was a little bit harsh what he said about me. But if he apologises, then it's just water under the bridge, you know. So has he got to come up to you now? Is that how this is going to get resolved? Well, I mean, say he come up to me. I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd still never ignore him. I ain't going to ignore anyone. You know, if I see him, I'd say hello and stuff. But I was just a little bit taken back. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, I felt as though a few years ago, he, he got banned for, for six or seven months, obviously, which was which was quite harsh. And I was one of the few people which he even said to me that was texting him saying, oh, you're okay, mate. Obviously, keep your chin up. Obviously, you'll come back stronger and everything. And and for him to obviously mention that in the interview, it was sort of a little bit hurtful, really. But, uh, you know, life at the end of the day, I ain't going to lose too much sleep over it. Why don't you, because you're world champion again, why don't you make him bow and offer your hand and he can kiss the hand? Is that Would that be enough? <laughs> I'm not sure you can do that, mate, with the COVID rules. <laughs> I was really, blow your kiss, blow your kiss. Uh, listen, I want to I want to talk about a, a moment in the final. Actually, if I may, I want to go back to that. You probably know what I'm going to talk about in the twentieth frame. Your snooker behind the brown. You use the the rest extended rest, and then you use the swan. I think it was, and it you know it, was, it it just didn't go right. And then of course, the white was in a slightly different place. I'm sure you're aware of this, and you managed to get down on the white ball, put a tiny bit of right hand side, and come up the table, hit a red. You didn't go on to win that frame, but it's something that a lot of people have been talking about. I know Ronnie O'Sullivan said it wasn't right, not what necessarily what you did, but the fact that the, the scenario actually wasn't sorted out correctly. Um, can you can you explain that moment and, and just tell us what was going through your mind and can you understand why people are talking about it? And were you aware that the white was in a different place to where it was originally behind the brown? No, not at all. I mean, I can't understand, because to be fair, even when I first come to play the shot before I played with the spider, I could still hit the right-hand side of the whites. Fair enough, obviously, it might have not been exactly the same place. Uh, but I could still hit the right-hand side of the white to play the shot while I played the third time. It's just I chose not to do that the first time because I thought it's such an harder shot to try and judge it off the ball cushion with side to try and get perfect where you need to get on the red, where if you're playing it plain ball, you can more or less judge it. So I thought I'll try it with the spider first to just play it plain ball off two. Didn't didn't succeed. And then I thought I'll get the swan next so I can get a bit higher so I can hit more of the cue ball to still play playing ball off the cushion didn't succeed and then I thought the only other shot I can do is try and play it with the side which I could have played the first time but I knew it was such an harder shot to play but I'd already tried it twice with a spider and even my few of my friends are saying like congratulations on winning the world mate but you need to practice more with that spider because you're not very good <laughs> but uh, and then I've tried it the third time and ended up hitting the red and, and lost the frame but uh, yeah it was a horrible snooker to be in I mean no matter what I played I was always probably going to stick him on it was just sort of damage limitations where I sort of left a few balls do you do you think they can they can improve that area of the game when you're talking about the misrule and you've got to replace the balls? I always thought that maybe they could play some kind of virtual grid over the table. So when they go to put the white ball back, it will be in a certain box. So you know it's in a certain box. Someone told me that out in Asia, I've not seen this, but you've played out there millions of times. And you can tell me if it's true. They're, they've got something that reflects down the image of where the table was before onto the current table. So you yeah, can yeah, it's, it's similar to that. I mean, in in Asia, like, I mean, what they do with the UK tournaments when they when they put it back up on the screen, it's basically just shadows. So it's like a lighter version of the cue ball or the red for them to try and find the area to get it back in exactly the right place. Which sometimes, obviously, it's difficult. But uh, in Asia, it's very very good because what they've got, if you do a foul and a miss and you bring it back up on the screen, they have like white circles, like bold sort of white circles on every single ball which is situated on the table. And then what they do, when you move the cue ball into the circle to try and get back in the right spot, once it's bang in the right spot, it comes up with a dot in the middle of the circle to say, yeah, that's bang on. 
obviously into until you move it obviously into the the exact spot that dot don't come up on the screen so you keep moving it across so all you've got is this circle to try and get the cue ball into and until that dot comes up it's never it's never in the right position so I don't know why they don't do that in the UK. Because I mean, in China, if that's the case, you, you're always guaranteed to get it back in exactly the right spot every single time. Yeah, it's quite bizarre. Um, let's talk about you in a bit more detail. I know that last year in the World Championship, you went out to Ronnie O'Sullivan in the semi-finals. That was that was a tough defeat for you. Did you learn anything from that match? Did did that loss motivate you this year, spur you on a bit, or it wasn't even about that this time round? Yeah, it definitely motivated me a little bit. Motivated me a little bit more because it's the one table set up, uh, as I said earlier on in the interview. After the match, uh, you never know when you're going to get to that one table setup again. So every time you get there, if you do lose, it always hurts that little bit more because you think, well, that might have been the last chance of me trying to to become world champion. And uh, obviously losing to Ronnie the way I lost as well, obviously said to hurt it a bit more because I felt as though I probably threw it away in the third session. I could have pulled away and gone 14-9 up. And it was my own fault. I missed the red. And then Ronnie's obviously the last session played unbelievable and is probably the only person who could have done that in them last three frames, just basically just not missed a ball under them circumstances as well. So it was tough to take. But at the same time, like you say, getting to the one table setup this year, it sort of made me try that little bit harder because I thought, look, here I am again. I've got another chance and I don't want to let it slip this time. We should talk about the crowd there as well. You know, um, we started with, what, 25% capacity. And in the end for the final, it was 100% capacity, which was fantastic to see for so many reasons. What was it like for you playing in front of a packed house where, of course, you know, over the last 12 months, you've been playing in an empty arena, usually at Milton Keynes. What was that like? Yeah, it was amazing, mate. Absolutely amazing. As you say, the last 12 months have been tough for, for every snooker player and every sportsman out there playing in front of no crowd. But uh, even the first round against Kurt Mafflin, I think it was only, like you say, 25% capacity. So it was probably like 200, 200, 300 people in there. But even that just felt like a full crowd because we've had 12 to 15 months playing in front of no one. But to, to get to the one-table setup, get to the final and play in front of a full crowd again, it just felt as though the last 12 or 15 months seems like it's never, ever happened because you just expect to get into the world final and it to be a full crowd anyway. So playing last year, Ronnie in the semi-final, one-table setup with no crowd in there, it was, it was tough. It was quite soulless, but at the same time, you still got motivated because the tournament is what it is. It's the cream of the crops, the peak. It's a the pinnacle of our sports, what everyone wants to to win and what everyone wants to achieve. So you still get yourself motivated in that particular tournament, whether there's no crowd or not. Did it feel quite alien going back into that arena or was it just natural, like you'd never been away? Yeah, it just felt natural, like never been away. I suppose obviously because it was only, because it comes around once a year that it only ever happened once and hopefully it only ever will happen once that we went out, walked out with no crowd. If it was something that was happened for two or three years in a row, and then this year we went out and it was a full crowd. I suppose it would have felt alien, but because it was just a one-off, and hopefully it is a one-off, uh, it, it felt quite normal, to be to be fair. What what does a win like this, becoming world champion for the fourth time, what does that do for your confidence and your game? Is it, is it Are you now in the best place you've been for a long time? Is it the same after every time you're in a world championship? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, I hope so. I mean, I've said that before, and then... All of a sudden, I've won the World Championship three times. And then before I was with Chris Emery, I'm looking at changing things with my technique. And all my friends and family and Vicky are saying, look, there's nothing wrong with your technique. You can't win three world titles and win three Masters and stuff like this. It does something wrong. So you just need to sort your head out. So uh, that's proved to myself now working with Chris that it's nothing wrong with your technique. I mean, I just need to just play now and try and enjoy it and just try and stay mentally positive. And if I start struggling a little bit mentally and then keep Chris on board and, and do everything he's telling me. How do you rate your game now compared to previous world championships? Yeah, to be fair, I think 
as if you if you to look back at the four world championships or one, I think as far as performance goes, that's probably the best I've played in all four world championships. When I came out on top, I mean, the first three rounds, I've more or less played faultless snooker from the last 32 through to the semi-final. I think beating Mark Williams with a session to spare was was a great win because he played fantastic against John Higgins and he's been playing well this season. Kurt Mathlin on paper was a potential banana skin, great player, got to the quarters last year himself. So to beat him 10-1 and also Mark Allen for me, he's one of the one of the greats of the game as well. Great player, great bottle and to, and to push him aside 13-7, 13-8 as well. I felt as though my game was probably as good as it's ever been going into the World Championship this year. I'm told by so many snooker players how gruelling it is, certainly if you get to the final 17 days. The, the physical side of things, how are you feeling? How do you get through 17 days? How difficult is it as well for you? Do you, you, know, do you have to stay sharp and match fit and focus? How do you do all of that? Yeah, the biggest thing for me, I mean, physically I felt all right. It was just mentally I was just drained towards the end of the comp, like semi-finals and final, just more fatigued and tired. But physically I still felt fine. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, the World Championships, it's such a such a Ironman tournament, such a long comp. I think whenever you're not playing, you just don't need to switch off as much as possible, get as much rest as possible and, and try not to do too much. And, and to be fair, that's exactly what, what we did. We we hired a, an apartment, me and Vicky, which we did last year as well. And every time when I wasn't playing, I was basically just staying in the apartment and just ordering food, not really even going out to restaurants to eat, just ordering food in and trying to get as much rest as possible. And what about practice? How much practice time are you allowed? I'm guessing you get more as the tournament goes on because there's less people there. Yeah, you do. You're normally allowed two 30-minute practices a day, but a lot of the time, if I felt as though I'd played, I was only really practicing when, on the off days. I mean, if I was having like two sessions a day where I was playing 10 in the morning and 7 at night, I was playing the 10 o'clock session and I wasn't really going to back across there until probably half six and just having 15 or 20 minutes before I was going on at seven because... You don't really need to do too much. Once you're involved in the competition, it's just a matter of ticking over then. You've done all your hard work on the practice table beforehand. You're now level with John Higgins uh, in world titles. I mean, I know this sounds silly, but I think there's a massive, this is going to sound stupid, but there is a massive difference between three world titles and four. I know I know, it's just one, but when you when you now think that you've won the world title four times, does that feel totally different to the three that you won? I, I, I know that sounds barking, but, the reason I say that is because there is what only four players in history that have won it more times than you. And those players, of course, you know, are the greatest players in our sport. But now you're in that conversation. There's a big, big jump between three and four, isn't there? Yeah, huge. Because for me, I mean, same again as what you're saying, it may seem like a stupid comment, but because it's such a tough tournament to win over two weeks, for me, every time, if, if you have to win the World Championships, you feel like you've won two tournaments. So you feel like you've probably won two worlds when you've won it once because it's, it's that long a tournament and such a, a a tough tournament to win so as you say to, to go from three to four even though it's only one tournament and one title it, feel, it feels like it's an extra it's an extra one as well so to, to equal John Higgins is incredible really and also to to get above Mark Williams for, for bragging rights as well because he's always given me a bit of banter it makes it even more special <laughs> you, you, must, you must be thinking now because I am that four I'm thinking um, he's only two away from O'Sullivan and Reardon and Davis. And then if you, you get, you're still young, what, you're 37? 37, yeah. 37. So you've still got loads and loads of time. Then you're thinking, well, oh, he's knocking on the door of, of Hendry's seven. Are these thoughts that you're having at the moment, they must be going through your mind? Yeah, the, the back of my mind. I mean, when you look at like six and seven, as I just said, like to win a world, it's like tough. So when you think you've still got to win a number two, I mean, like that's incredible, really. Because if you'd have said to me sitting here now and I'd not won the world title, right, you're going to win two world titles, you'd be like, well, yeah, that'd be amazing. I'd, I'd take that now. So for me to still have to 
try and win another two, even though I'm on four, is is going to be really, really tough. But as you say, I'm 37 years old. You look at Higgins, you look at O'Sullivan, Williams, they're 30, 43, 44, still playing at the top of the game, still playing some fantastic snooker. As long as I stay healthy and fit and my hunger's still there, I think as far as the hunger goes, I'll never go until the day I, I sort of fall down the rankings. But uh, why I'm staying fit and healthy, there's no reason why I can't. Uh, no guarantee that I'm going to, but I'll be I'll be trying my hardest every year I go back there. And if I can, then fantastic. If I don't, I'm happy at four. This is a, this is obviously a podcast, so people can't see you, but I can see you because we're doing it over Zoom. And I can see, and you've got the World Trophy next to you, only because I said, where is it? Go and get it. I just want to point out that you, you didn't just turn on your Zoom. In, 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 until you said where it was, it was still in the box. <laughs> right, okay. So I was going to ask, what's the, I, I adore snooker, right? And when I'm lucky enough to see that trophy this next year, I'm still in awe of it. I still pick up. I still hold it. I still can't believe that Joe Davies bought it with his prize money in 1927 when he became world champion. For the, it still has that wow factor for me. What's it like, A, for you to have it there in your room and B, to have your name on it three times already with one more still to come? Yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Because, I mean, you look at all the history, like you say, it back dates here to 1926-27, Joe Davis. So, I mean... It's the most iconic trophy in, in, in snooker. I mean, people say, oh, the Masters trophy is a great one because it's crystal and it looks great because it's got the balls in, but nothing nothing beats that trophy there. So, I mean, every time the World Championships is on, that's all, you, that's all you're playing for, you know. The prize money is irrelevant for me when you look at something like that. That's everyone striving to pick up that trophy at the end of the, at the, end of the fortnight. It is fantastic. You've got a snooker um, table in your house here. Will your, will your mates come over and play a couple of frames and then if they beat you with like a 90 start, they'll get to lift the trophy up. Do, they, do you have fun nights like that? <laughs> well, I've got a replica one, but say replica, it's half the size. Well, Snooker gave me a replica the first year I won it and it was half the size. So that's like rusting, rusting away in the snooker room. So we'll probably play for that one. We probably won't play for this. <laughs> do they not give you one every time you become world champion? No, no. Uh, they said to me one year that they're going to give me a replica because the first year I won it, I asked them if I could have the trophy and have the mould of the... Of the uh, of the trophy so I can pay to get one made myself and they said oh leave it with us we'll, we'll sort something out and we'll sort a replica and I said look I don't expect it for three I said I will gladly pay for it no matter what it is and then I went there the following year and Rachel from World Snooker said to me Mark we've got your replica trophy over in the corner and I seen it, it was basically like in just a, a Terry's chocolate orange box so <laughs> I, thought, I thought that, that don't look like a replica trophy to me I mean, it looked like something that I mean, you could use it to put your eggs in and dip soldiers in. I mean, it's that small. But uh, hopefully in time, I'll, I'll get myself a replica. Yeah, that, that, the one you've got there is the actual one. They've not replaced it and like they keep the real one under lock and key. That is the one, isn't it? Yeah, I'll get to keep this for probably, I don't know, six or seven months. I mean, normally pre-COVID, what they do when you go to like the UK Championships, they have a big cabinet that they put the free trophies on display. So you have a... The World Championships, the UK and the Masters, they put them in a, in a cabinet on display. So sometimes I'll have to take the trophy back for that tournament and then they'll give it me back after the UK. But because of with the COVID rules, I'll probably get to keep it for a year and then take it back to, to Sheffield next year. Here we go. I've got the, the replica world one oh, here. Look what? at this. Oh my God, that is horrific, isn't it? Look at the size of that. that is, put, put them next to each other. <laughs> that is, it does, it's not even the same shape, is it? No. And I mean, look, I, I'm not even. I can't even clean it. I can't even bring myself to clean it. Yeah, who? So. I mean, yeah. Okay, well, we it's luck, lucky enough you got the real one next to you. Um, listen, what uh, what's next for you? I mean, this is of course the end of the snooker season. Um, how do you plan on moving forward? What's coming up? What what are you going to do between now and the start of next season? 
Well, I don't, I don't know when the season starts at the moment. I spoke to Jason Ferguson to see uh, when the calendar is going to start. His sentiment at the moment provisionally start looking at July, middle of July, end of July. So I'll put my queue down now for a good month or so and probably play a little bit of golf, try and get some sun and uh, yeah, just enjoy a bit of family time because hopefully come July, if the restrictions are lifted and, and we're traveling around Europe and the calendar's back to normal how it was before, then we're away from home quite a lot. So try and get as much family time as possible. What do you play off? Are you a bit of a bandit? No, I mean, I, I, I normally used to play probably once, twice a year max, but since with all this COVID and the lockdown last year, uh, because that was one of the sports, first sports back, I've started playing a lot more. So I put my handicap in a few months ago and they put me off 15. So it's not a bad start. Right. Okay, you know what you're doing. You, you, we'll have to have a, a game. You'll have, yeah, have, sure. have to give me 13, all right, just to let you know. Uh, and I'm not a bandit, I'm horrific. Uh, listen, Mark, I, I'm so pleased for you, you know. Um, um, I'm chuffed to, to pieces. You're one of the nicest players on the tournament, on the tour. And it's uh, it's always nice when a nice person wins a big trophy. And that certainly happened this time around. I, I couldn't be happy for you. You thoroughly deserved it. Some of the best I've ever seen you play over those 17 days. So congratulations on becoming world champion again for the fourth time. Wonderful achievement, Mark. Thanks, mate. I appreciate you having me. Cheers, bud. Well, we've come to the end of the episode and, of course, the end of the season. Thank you so much for listening throughout the World Championships. You can, of course, go back and listen to previous episodes at your leisure, as well as rating and reviewing and subscribing to this podcast on your platform of choice. We and me would love you forever if you did that. So thank you. Eurosport, of course, is the place to watch live snooker. And as usual, you can follow everything on eurosport.co.uk and the Eurosport app. That's it. So for myself, it's goodbye. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the new season. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.